Well, welcome to another episode of the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Uh, Ashley and I are here today with Christopher Mott, who is a scholar at the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy. Um, and he has written a really interesting piece that was published earlier this summer called The Woke Imperium. And we're going to dive into that today and talk about the interesting points that he elaborates in that piece and what it means going forward. And we'll try to cast a sort of doomer optimism lens over the discussion too, what it might mean for people in our, our epistemic community here. So uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Chris. We really are excited to talk to you about this piece, which is super provocative, super interesting. Um, so yeah, I'd like, maybe I'll just like throw out a question to kind of um, get us started and just let you go, Chris, kind of describing your work. So an impression that I came away with is what you're describing is kind of an interesting confluence or a sort of overlapping Venn diagram between some different groups of influential groups of people in the U.S., especially in the North Atlantic region, who um, you wouldn't think to have too much in common, really, but maybe have been finding common purpose, especially when it comes to interventionism and foreign policy and things like that. And these groups are, on one hand, the neoconservatives who believe in their own strain of American exceptionalism and bringing the greatness of our civilization and culture you know, to the rest of the world. And then on the other hand, you have uh, very progressive liberal type people who um, are very concerned about racism and social justice and um, have grown a lot out of postmodern philosophy and things like that. And so it seems like these groups that you normally wouldn't put together are finding some interesting kind of common calls and it's having a huge in influence on um, a lot of our institutions of our society and our government. So if, with that as a kind of introduction, do you want to take it from there, Chris, and kind of elaborate a little bit for our listeners and, and describe your piece? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> my uh, piece on the book, Perium, is uh, a deliberately provocative title, but I actually was afraid uh, when I chose it for obviously because it would get more attention that way. I was afraid that it would actually lead to overwhelmingly people positively responding to my work who were who were just right wing and then people responding negatively who uh were not and that hasn't happened at all which is a good sign aside from like one or two very minor uh people i don't even know about who criticized it who clearly hadn't read it uh, <laughs> uh I, I think it is very obvious that everyone who has read it that, uh um knows that this is uh, we are officially a nonpartisan institution uh, at IPD um, and I wrote it to be a nonpartisan piece um, and just kind of noticing certain trends that I have been following for about a decade now um, and these trends basically are a weird slow motion political realignment between actors who would not have been allied with each other in the past, um, full, uh, you know, my personal disclosure is I became an adult in about the mid 2000s. Uh, that was when George W. Bush was president. Uh, to this day, uh, I, I, I find that era particularly horrifying <laughs> and, and formative in my life, the post 9-11 era, and in particular, the United States' response to 9-11. Um, ha has been a, a thing that has eventually would lead me to uh, follow at first foreign policy uh, and then want to take some role in, in shaping discussion about it. I was originally a history major. I wanted uh, my focus was Central Asia. I just wanted to study uh, nomadic steppe empires. <laughs> it's still an interest of mine, a big interest, in fact, but um, it was not I was originally not going down the international relations path whatsoever. But I felt that the um, the 
uh, horror show of Bush era foreign policy was so bad that I I had to get a graduate education in international relations. Uh, and the reason I knew it was so bad was because I had a historical perspective, because it was just looking at hubris, looking at uh, certain uh, uh, forms of ideology, particularly kind of missionary ideology, uh, how bad they backfire on the people who deploy them, how bad they can be for the people they're deployed onto. And so um, I've been kind of, and but, but back then, as, as uh, I'm sure people that lived through that era remember, the kind of postmodern academic uh, and, and kind of progressive liberal side of things, they hated George W. Bush. They hated neoconservatism. Um, and so I viewed them as, while I had some disagreements with them back then, um, I viewed them as kind of like, you know, obviously kind of my allies against the common foe. Something that I noticed uh, and that particularly began to take off around the time of the second term of the uh, Barack Obama administration, but there were definitely hints of it in the first term, was that there was a major realignment going along oftentimes on a kind of partisan way where at first you could kind of explain it as when Obama's in the driver's seat, they're just not criticizing him because he's team D uh, and they hated Bush because he was team R. And, and you know, there's some of that, of course. Uh, the two party systems, both uh, uh, wretchedness and genius comes from the fact that you can play ping pong with any issue and get anyone to self-contradict their past selves if, you know, it, <laughs> it meets them on, the, on a different thing. And it was noticing people like me who had actually been relatively enthusiastic Obama supporters in 2008. Um, there was a big division between people like me who were like, oh, this is not at all what we, <laughs> what we signed on for. And people who were like, oh, this is great. I love it. Uh, isn't it wonderful that, um, you know, the, the, the government style promised to us by, um, um, by uh, Aaron Sorkin has has now come true, and and the snappy quips and um, <laughs> all this stuff, and so you you that was the beginning of a divide that I guess would more famously become the kind of Bernie Hillary divide, and also a divide that started to appear after Romney's defeat in 2012 on the Republican side with the kind of uh, uh, Trump versus uh, Trump and Rand Paul, arguably versus everyone else divide. So um, there's there's been this weird realignment um, as I mentioned specifically in I don't want to go too much into detail about it because I, I've mentioned it on multiple other interviews I did with the gray zone with Matt Taibbi etc um, but like I'll just throw it out there my big moment in recognizing the sea change was Coney 2012 uh, which which was a very specific campaign to bring to justice uh the African warlord in uh, Uganda, uh, Joseph Kony, and uh, his kind of forced recruitment of child soldiers and his like weird, uh, you know, cult uh, personality, quite literally a cult. And, you know, this is a really, really, really sketchy guy for sure. But uh, what it had to do with US foreign policy, what it had to do with, uh, why did it become so popular from something that no one had ever heard of before? And honestly, no one has ever heard of again now in the present day. Why was this flash in the pan campaign uh, such a thing. Why was it so signal boosted? And why did so many people who were anti-interventionist in the Bush era jump on board and say, well, this is different? And so that really got me thinking about certain things that had happened, uh, certain certain uh, changes that had occurred, uh, especially since Obama became president, and how there was this uh, weird uh, gradual adoption of more and more interventionism based off of human rights specifically concerns. Uh, and but it was still in militarized interventionism. And I think then that really doubled down in 2015 when it became very obvious that the Democratic Party was going to make try its best to make Hillary Clinton uh, Obama's successor. 
Um, and of course, Hillary Clinton is basically a neoconservative. I mean, I mean there's no way around that. Uh, <laughs> and it is worth reminding people the neoconservative movement was born in um, in the late 1970s. It was born from Senator Scoop Jackson uh, influencing the Carter administration. And, and this is the thing that was originally a Democratic Party thing. So a lot of us are used to thinking of this as like the Republicans invented it. They were the first people to put those people in power for sure, but they did not invent it. So in some ways it's coming home. And I think Hillary Clinton was the way to bring about the, the military industrial complex kind of merger with a kind of more progressive vision of, of it rather than this clash of civilizations, uh, culturally chauvinist vision that we often see from the Reagan, post Reagan uh, Republican party. So um, th this has been uh, a thing that's been going on. And I think, the interesting thing was when it first started, I think a lot of people on the progressive left were very skeptical of this. Um, and it was met with a lot of hostility. And there were a lot of people that were like, oh, that's like the Clinton vision of stuff. It's just an excuse for war. But what has gradually been happening is this policy cadre of people have been uh, people that kind of have are more pro-establishment views on foreign policy, but are younger, they are my age and younger, um, they have uh, internalized a lot of this logic. And so the two are just naturally kind of merging. It's a, it's a process of cultural osmosis that occurs all the time. And, and of course, it's really important for me to mention because like the one thing I have gotten this criticism for the Woke Imperium white paper, which is totally unjustified once again, if, if you've actually read it, the one thing that keeps coming up is that people say, well, moralism as as uh, in pursuit of kind of imperial objectives is hardly new, right? And I'm like, well, yes, right. <laughs> and uh, I make it clear from the first paragraph of the paper that uh, this is a, always an ongoing process. This happens continuously in history. It is particularly prevalent in British and American history. Um, and, and this has happened many times before. Uh, in, in, most obviously in the Bush administration in recent history, but I mean, going back, we can go back really, really far if we want to talk about this. And it will happen again. And, and there will be a new form of this when wokeness has run out of steam and it's no longer uh, has a huge amount of cultural cachet, which I do believe is inevitable because it's very strange and outside of academia and the media, not very popular. So um, this process will be, uh, will reoccur. But for now, what's happening right now is this kind of um, uh, Bush Clintonification of uh, kind of social justice causes. And you see it in a lot of commentary, including like some anti-establishment left-wing commentary uh, where it's very much everything gets buried under culture war priorities. Uh, the way that people talk about great power politics, for instance, is often colored by what the domestic policies of other countries are compared to the United States as a way to calculate who and what is a lesser evil. And so the whole thing, what it does is it recreates the whole like existential battle uh, syndrome, whether it, it was you know seen in the war on terror or the Cold War, where something that is basically just you know, normal state behavior, states compete with each other. Uh, full disclosure, I am, you know, very much of the realist school in international relations. So I, I, I don't really have a, a super strong, like, uh, you know, ideology of like, oh, you know, international relations can be transformed into something else. No, I view it as a very, very tribal survivalistic thing. Um, but in that tribal survivalistic thing, um, there's a lot of uh, dispute even between realists about how hawkish you should be, how dovish you should be, uh, 
who your allies should be, if permanent alliances are even good. You know, there's a lot of intellectual diversity there. But one thing that we all kind of agree with is that it's not good <laughs> when the policy elite kind of believes its own uh, for domestic consumption ideology, because it can lead them to treat uh, international politics as more of a religious dispute than it is like a look at a balance sheet and what's your interest and what's not your interest. And But it's very useful, nevertheless, to whip up popular support, to get people on your side, particularly media actors and people influenced by media actors, um, if you have a kind of moralistic framework to justify what you do. And so what we are seeing now is the moralistic framework is changing away from uh, you know, societies need to be more explicitly like America in the political sense and into a more societies need to adopt America's culture or America's cultural fixations um, so that they can become enlightened and, and you know, properly uh, independent. Of course, it's the same thing. When, when you really think about it, that is exactly the same thing as the neoconservative objective of just like brutally kind of restructuring a society um, against its natural evolution. So um it, it why this all exists as i postulate is just to continue the project globe spanning hegemony um and it's it's a funny and ironic in a weird way because of course this is an officially anti-colonial anti uh you know white supremacist ideology but and yet and yet uh <laughs> how it actually behaves is uh very much in that vein and, and this is not dissimilar to other things that have happened in history an example I mentioned at the end of the paper, um, which I think is really important and did really inform my view of a lot of this when I first started, is how the British Empire pivoted from spreading slavery around the world to make money and to become powerful. And then once they were wealthy and powerful, they then pivoted into the anti-slavery empire. And they said, well, now we need to keep expanding because we need to extirpate the slave trade that we created um, from a lot of these <laughs> places in the world. And so, but it looks like, oh, isn't that nice? The British Empire went from spreading slavery to extirpating slavery, but it did so under the same rubric of expand at all costs. And as any country that has been colonized by Britain knows, there is a certain form of slavery in British imperialism, no matter if it's official or not, and, and, and strange policies will be um, enforced on you. And uh, usually what happens, ironically, because people will say, well, if you you know, believe in certain uh, socially progressive causes, which personally, some of them I do, um, it, then you should support this process. Once again, I will say, look at history and look at what happened when a country tries to socially engineer a very different country. Almost always it empowers local reactionary elements anyway, because it those causes become conflated with a weird foreign missionary project and rightfully so. And so, um, I, my predictions for the Woke Imperium are it is going to further uh, kind of coalesce millennial and Zoomer uh, elite into supporting it domestically, but mostly it will backfire abroad and it will actually backfire really badly on the United States. And the U.S. will be seen as a culture warrior in a way that countries like China and India uh, are not, although Russia is increasingly posing itself to be the kind of anti, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the inverse version of this. So that's a bit of a different story. They're kind of falling into the trap. But, um, I, you know, when you look at how China conceptualizes, um, who is the only real peer competitor to the U.S., I would say right now, uh, what China conceptualizes foreign policy in a totally, totally different way, a way that actually is very similar to how the U.S. conceptualized foreign policy 
um, in, in his past, uh, which is very just interest and in state based and uh, not really interested in converting other societies, just doing business with them. Um, and you know, building its its alliances not on a values basis, but as just kind of common threats basis, uh, which to me is a much more logical way to conduct foreign policy. But <laughs> but um, uh, this is this is a um, you know th this is an ongoing process, and like I said, it will change again, probably in the near future, even. But we're going to have for a long time, even after this is no longer cutting edge, and it's arguable it's not cutting edge even now. But um, we're going to have this kind of uh, uh, Buddha Judge Harris elite <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> and it's uh, and, and and it's going to be hard to get rid of the lingering effect, just like it's hard to get rid of even to this day, uh, neoconservatives in, in, you know, in the Republican Party. So uh, that's basically a summary of it. The actual paper itself talks about historical examples. I have at least 80 footnotes in there. I've got links to stuff, uh, actual videos of people talking in this way, people uh, co conceiving of diplomacy in ways that reference the 1619 project, in ways that talk about social justice abroad. Um, and, you know, so I, I do recommend any viewers uh, read the whole thing because I'm not going to be able to uh, recall every single citation I have. <laughs> but um, I, I make the case, I think, pretty convincingly that this is what's going on right now and that the purpose of this is to justify further U.S. interventionism on the world stage. Great. That's, man, that's an awesome summary. And I have so many kind of jumping off points from stuff you mentioned there. Um, you mentioned uh, something that I, I didn't know that I read in your piece that I thought was remarkable about that, about the British Empire, you know, starting itself off by advancing slavery and then switching later to being abolition and having abolition of slavery be a justification for more imperialism. Um, and I thought that was, I was quite remarkable. Um, and after reading your piece, I'm like, oh, this is so remarkable. And then on the other hand, I'm kind of like, I know it's not remarkable because like you're saying, it's kind of just more of the same where yeah. the establishment has got its agenda, whatever it wants to intervene in this or that country or do a war on terror or whatever. And what it's got to do is kind of capture some of the zeitgeist of the day and some of the framing of the day and recruit that in. And, and I think also um, an element of attaching to certain issues that certain constituencies of people like hold dear in their heart. Like social justice concerns are very dear in a lot of people's hearts, you know, with good reason. I was thinking back to, you mentioned the Bush era, uh, uh, the neocons and the war on terror. And to me, the equivalent back then was, if you were, for us anti-war people back then, you got accused of, oh, you don't support the troops. You don't support the troops, which was kind of, which was the sort of way of saying you're a bad person. You're not supporting this agenda, which is for democracy and freedom and all these elevated things. And we have a way of identifying you as a bad person if you're not going along with this. And then today we have our own sort of, you know, you can call somebody a white supremacist or something, or, or, or you're anti-woman if you um, were happy that the United States withdrew from Afghanistan. I remember seeing all these things in the media. They're like, what about the women? What about the girls? What about the women? What about the girls? And I'm like, you know, did it help them at all that we were there in the first place? No. So that's, that's ridiculous. But what the I was like, by the way, was, was the event that I was able to, to leverage to, to, to tell my employers that I want to do this project and I want to do it now because look at the media commentary yeah. about the Afghan withdrawal. And it's just, it's, 100% proves my thesis we need and, and other people are going to notice it now so I want to be I want to be yeah. first up the gate and that was actually what sold them was was the hyperbolic media commentary of the Afghan right right that there was somehow it was really originally motivated by these humanitarian impulses for the women living under these tribal warlords or whatever and so okay so what I want to drill down into with you 
is because what you've highlighted is like this is a this is a theme that runs through history. But this kind of thing always happens. It just takes different forms depending on the current time, right? There's still a part of me that that, and I don't know if it's just that, like you know, like you were saying, you know, you became politically active in response to the egregious policies of the Bush administration, and you kind of found yourself on the left, so to speak, as a result of that, you know. And then now it's like, are you on the left? I mean, I don't know. It's very confusing. I have the same kind of confusion myself. There's something. Something about this dispensation of the moral rhetoric around interventionism that I somehow I find it more troubling than previously. And with the Bush administration stuff, I was super opposed, but I was like, yeah, these are just power hungry neocons. They don't believe in anything. Like you're saying, the Hillary Clinton types whose eyes look like fish, like they're cold fish. There's no soul in there. Right. <laughs> they just they want power. They want to get what they want. If you stand in their way, you're a goner. And it's really just about that. And they'll use whatever cynically, but you don't think they really believe it, right? And the scary thing is when you have the true believers, the true crusaders, it seems like, you know? So, I agree with that, but but I did also get a true believer vibe from many people in the Bush administration, specifically the the, the Christian right element hmm, of the Bush administration, hmm. which was the yeah. primary thing that terrified me at the time, and honestly still terrifies me. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, yeah. I I do agree that the true believers are scary, but but I, I I think that they're they're to be found everywhere. They're kind of the the useful idiot battalion of of the the imperial war machine in some ways. Oh wow. Okay. So so my question is. Um, can you highlight some of the aspects of this kind of current dispensation that you consider to be unique, not just the same old thing kind of playing out, but like what right. is unique about this dispensation? And you already hinted a little bit that you kind of see the future of this. It's just going to kind of play itself out. It's eventually going to wind itself out or destroy itself or something like that. I think something that our, our viewers will be really interested in is kind of like, yeah, what does that mean? for? Are we just spectators? We're just going to sit back and watch this happen. Is it going to affect our lives? Is there any way to constructively engage with it or diffuse it? What do we need to be on the lookout for? Uh, and that sort of thing. So what do you see about this that's maybe unique compared to previous versions of, of this kind of moral hijacking to serve the interests of empire? And can I just <clears throat> jump in there really briefly and say, I think the, the like, just to add a little bit um, uh, of my own perspective to that question, like, I think part partially what's happening as like a not super deeply interested but generally interested observer of like international relations and politics is you don't even really know what to think or like you like or there's like lots of pressure and in, in lots of directions there's lots of moralizing going on in every direction um, I was a big Obama supporter, like was out canvassing for him in 08 and then just got increasingly disillusioned over this time. And then the still, <laughs> if I say something anti-Obama, people are like, you're a conservative because of that. So there's like this weird thing where nobody knows like what is the correct moral thing to say. There's so much moralizing. There's so much what team are you on if you're critical of any neoconservatism. So there's like I think that that at the beginning, the description you you gave of the realignment, um, political realignment, everybody's heads are spinning about that. And it's extremely confusing. Um, not only is there bad information, but there's also like a lot of moralizing language going on where if you're critical of like this neoconservative, um, you know, foreign policy, you, you're you're like labeled you know, something bad, whatever, whatever name you want to put on it, uh, anti-woke, 
whatever. So like, yeah, as like regular people, like how to wrap your heads around this? Like, what is the, what is the appropriate if you're an anti-war, anti-neocon um, leaning person? Well, I think, okay, well, I'll, I'll answer that question first and then I'll, I'll get back to, to uh, Josh's uh, question. Um, which is slightly more structural, so I'll need slightly more time. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, so um, to answer your question, Ashley, um, I think that you the most useful thing is to understand that weaponized moralism exists specifically to create this kind of confusion, is to take people's eyes off of um, actual policy and put the eyes firmly on stuff that isn't policy. It's very like, it's cultural, it's partisan. It's like, well, don't you wanna be tribe A and therefore you can't agree with anything that tribe B says. It, it's very useful. Of course, all parties do it and always have done it. Um, but that is the point. The point is like, uh, it, it's, it's a kind of McCarthyism or witch hunt logic it, where you, know, you don't wanna be those people, so don't, don't ask questions about these issues, no matter what individual problems you might have <laughs> with X, Y, and Z. And oh, it's totally okay to admit that party X isn't so great, but you know, you really have to first genuflect and, and say, well, yeah, but compared to party Y, and it, all of this stuff just distracts from the actual issues, the actual structural policy-oriented issues, which of course, particularly in foreign policy, no, no partisan you know, uh, filter, they exist everywhere. Um, you know, there, there is, uh, there's Tom Cotton and there's, uh, Adam Schiff and they're all two different parties and they superficially disagree with each other, but their worldviews on the, how the political establishment should function are actually identical. And, um, you know, I just want to briefly is... interject that I'm reminded of the meme of the four, like, um, drone planes that um, you know, it says uh, under under Bush in office, United We Stand sticker on the side. Obama in office, forward. Uh, Trump in office, Make America Great Again. Biden in office, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter. Um, it's like mm -hmm. it, it's all the still same drone uh, yep. dropping bombs, but it's just got different stickers on it. <laughs> exactly. And so, like, that's the purpose. I think the purpose is to play like like football back and forth and be like, oh, you know, that you don't want to be those people because I know people that had really uh, strongly, uh, you know, anti-neoconservative, uh, anti-neoliberal views when Republicans are in office and then immediately integrate to the Democratic establishment, which has the same views on those issues, just because of the culture war. And, and the culture yeah. war, I think, is the primary thing that is used to, to kick this football back and forth. Culture war and, of course, like knee-jerk patriotism. And uh, so these things are used, and they, they were used by the other side, in the Bush administration, they will probably be used by the other side again. And um, it, the, these things, that's just, and it's based off of like what's considered popular. So after 9-11, the whole country took a much more right-wing turn uh, because as a reaction to being, that's like normal in history, you know, like uh, the, the kind of tribalist rally around the flag effect when people get shocked and surprised and angry. Um, and so the, the general thing was like, yeah, we're gonna kill these people and uh, we're gonna, you know, in Ann Coulter's words, you know, invade their countries, convert them to Christianity, you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> this was the zeitgeist, right? Uh, now the zeitgeist is targeting a younger demographic who, because they grew up in the shadow of Bush, is very skeptical of, like, the Bush side of this discourse, but is very, very open, totally wide open on the left flank. 
for a similar type of policies to, to come back, which I guess brings me back to Josh's question. Um, how is this different? So yes, I, I make a very big point both on the report and when I talk about it, of saying that it's not all that different. It has a lot of similarities with things, but that doesn't mean that there aren't differences and there are differences. And I think uh, it's really important to understand what those differences are. I, I think first of all, it is trying to capture a younger demographic. Um, but the other difference to me, and this is the more concerning one, is that it's explicitly kind of not just showing superiority, but really going back old school, really old school, <laughs> a centuries old school, and seeking to really convert foreign societies in a way that, you know, like the the Jesuits in, in New Spain would have approved of, um, uh, the Portuguese in Asia, um, and of course, uh, the, the first incarnation of British imperialism, very tied to this, which is what I actually think is what this is the direct intellectual descended from. And also the right wing versions of this too, obviously more directly with, uh, considering the religious element. But um, this is the same thing. I, I think the particular nature of kind of virtue signaling at the top, distrust of powerful institutions and yet kind of supporting them anyway, is a very 17th century uh, very Anglo-Protestant phenomenon. And, and, and that is the thing that, that I think is left, right, and center in a lot of uh, U.S. foreign policy commentary. But right now, it's mostly on the left. We, we are seeing a, the birth of a kind of Anglo-American left who I would say is, is directly descended from like Oliver Cromwell. And, and like if, if you, <laughs> I actually had a friend who, who made a very, very funny Photoshop that I used multiple times on my blog. I liked it so much of uh, Oliver Cromwell with like toothpaste colored hair vaping <laughs> and looking really smug. <laughs> and it was like, that's kind of the, the um, that's the vibe, right? Like the, <laughs> that's the vibe of this. It's, and, and Oliver Cromwell, you have to keep in mind in the parliamentarians, they were the progressive faction of their time, or at least originally. And they were really into kind of uh, in what in today's parlance would be uh, when they took control of the country, going around and like reading out like problematic thought. And 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 they were all they were liberators and they were upending the balance of power in society. But they were also expansionists in the Caribbean. They were also they viewed themselves as fighting this cosmic battle against the Catholic Church. Um, they saw themselves as redeeming humanity from its past sins. And in something that is particularly overlaps with wokeness, there was this hatred of history. There was this hatred of being rooted in the past in any way. And the idea of saying our society is kind of uniquely evil. This is a thing that is both unique, I think, to the Puritans and to the woke movement, is to say that our society is evil and needs to be redeemed. But because we acknowledge that's evil and needs to be redeemed, we're kind of the chosen, the elect, the enlightened ones, right? Like we, we see this and other countries are too chauvinistic to see this. And this is why you get this like, oh, we're so bad, we're so bad, self-flagellation effect. But that is the proof that they're the enlightened people. That's the well, proof that they've taken. So, so Chris, is that, I kind of latched onto that. Is that the sort of, um, is that the overlap or the tie that brings together the neocon school of American exceptionalism and the woke school of American exceptionalism. Because the neocons are like, America is the greatest thing ever. And the wokes are like, America is the worst thing ever, which you would think that they could not work together, but then it's like they're saying, but no, but we have this grand moral project of atonement yes. for our nation born of slavery and all that. And, and somehow that 
that mission extends also to the rest of the world. It's, it's the, what I would say is the, it looks like they're the opposite, right? Like you said, but, but what you see in there when you compare them in that way, you do see what the similarity is. The similarity is, to put it in a left-right neutral term that is commonly used, American exceptionalism, right? It's the American exceptionalism either of we are great, we are the greatest, or the American exceptionalism of, oh God, we're so horrible. <laughs> and and, and we, we need to redeem ourselves and everyone should be paying attention because as we redeem ourselves, you too can redeem ourselves. And and this is, the commonality of this is like a protagonist syndrome, right? Is that America is just so different from other countries and therefore other countries are going to learn from its experience one way or the other. And that, I think, is what the commonality actually is. It's American exceptionalism. Whether it's negative or positive, it doesn't really matter. In the end, it's it's all about we're the protagonists of history. We're doing this fight so that you don't have to, so you better pay attention to it. And you better be on the quote-unquote right side of history. Um, I have uh, some some stories from Uruguay about um, American culture war stuff coming here. But um, separately, I want to say... Um, I had these friends um, when I was, um, I went to University of Chicago and graduated in 2007. So a ton of my friends were working on the Obama campaign like way early. And so got in the door and that's how these political campaigns work. Like if you are early, like an early adopter, you can rise in the ranks so fast and basically like get a job in the administration. Um, so a lot of them did. And, you know, like critical thinking undergrads. And then um, once they all got into like the administration in various positions, um, there was this sense that you like, you can't critique Obama. <laughs> and that's like so anti-democratic, it blew my mind. And they were like, and so this kind of thing really freaks me out um, because it's not only can you not critique any policy, like you don't critique Obama, like, you know, the, that's not something you do. Um, but also there is a sense like we can't even really talk about it. And if you do talk about it, then there is like this moralistic, um, you know, McCarthy like type, let's root out the people who are like not true believers. Um, that feels really scary to me. Um, and, and is I think worse, way worse now than it was then um, when my friends were in the Obama administration. Um, it's just totally- That was the start. That was the, I, I think the start of it was a, in a weird way, the, the early Obama administration saw that a lot of criticism, and they weren't wrong when they first brought this up, but they saw a lot of criticism they were receiving, particularly from the right, was racist like it was like a reaction against the first black president and i think yes. that that's correct like but, but originally there was a lot of that um yes. but then they saw oh that's a great get out of jail free card and so then it became all criticism of obama was racist and it was like oh okay sure and i thought people would see through this and i think at that time maybe more people did but that became more and more of the go-to playbook Yep. Yep. And um, I remember when the, the TARP bill was coming out and there's all these like financial decisions being made. And I was following like the finance, the world of uh, this recessions very closely. And I was like, oh, my God, what is happening with this TARP? These TARP decisions like, oh, my gosh, no, Obama's not who I thought he was, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, uh, again, it was like you, I remember I was um, I was working on an organic farm with this very liberal family and they were like, Obama's on the list to be, get a peace prize. And I was like, what? No, why? That's And then they were like, how, like, oh my God, you're a horrible conservative for, for saying that. And I was like, no, I'm like less, I'm like anti-war for, anyway. So, um, but the, the anecdotes um, from Uruguay, um, 
one one that was on the international stage um there was this um uh soccer player who uh played in europe um soccer and he and in uruguay it's common to call friends um negra or negro negrito like little black but it doesn't really have much to do with race and he had said that the soccer player um i think it was luis suarez who was a who's an uruguayan soccer player um and in in england and they were there was just like this huge thing like we're gonna suspend him for saying this word and he was like i mean you're the ones being imperial on like on the like uruguayan spanish colloquial language um and banning me according to your moral like um standards and i thought like this is just just so backwards you know and i, I i'm wondering if you have um I mean, that's just like a kind of, a, it's just silly and it's just one guy, but I mean, do you have more examples where, like the, how this is playing out, the details of it, um, that where they're kind of like backwards um, from what you would think would be the, the you know, like anti-imperial point of view? Yeah, well, um, I, so I have like a lot of, you know, like uh, the paper I wrote has like, it's very policy focused. So it's all just like, it's not like personal anecdotes, it's all policy stuff. Uh, I have a lot of examples in there of like uh, people painting, like uh, NGOs painting a George Floyd mural in Kabul, <laughs> which is like, what does that have to do with anything in Afghan, whatever? And just, okay, sure, whatever. But like, you know, uh, stuff like that. The Taliban covered it up. And then, of course, the Western media breathlessly, the Taliban covered up the George Floyd mural. And it's like, okay, yeah, right, right, whatever. Um, so it's like, it's stuff like that. It, it's um, it's stuff like um, uh, the, the, the current UN ambassador, uh, Linda Thomas Greenfield, uh, speaking at the UN and talking about how everyone could learn from the 1619 Project. Um, it's, <laughs> it's stuff uh, like... Um, uh, people being like in our fights for social justice or fights all around the world. That's like the policy stuff that I, I specifically reference. Um, the, the personal anecdotes I, I have that I don't reference because, you know, the nature of the <laughs> paper wouldn't, uh, it would undermine it if I did. But um, it's, it's stuff you kind of see like every day uh, and then kind of extrapolated into this thing uh, that where it doesn't belong. So like a, well, Latinx is a great example, right? Like the, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the popularity of that term Latinx, or I've even heard uh, amongst particularly deranged people, it pronounced as Latinx, which <laughs> which is I, I don't even like that. Just makes my spine want to leave my body. Um, that uh, polls have said that like this is has like a ninety five percent disapproval rate <laughs> in the Latino community, <laughs> and yet you find this really aggressive posture by i mean a very small handful uh, of uh, say aoc types but also a huge amount of like uh like white academics um really pushing this stuff and and using this term as like a high prestige like uh signal to the class thing and there's a reason why i actually uh despite it being a foreign policy paper like about a quarter of the woke imperium paper is a kind of a class analysis <laughs> because I felt uh, about the professional managerial class uh, and then specifically the media academics and foreign policy elite because I felt that 
A, you can't explain the Woke Imperium without understanding this class and why things are popular with them and why they support the things they, uh, they do. But also, it was really important for me to critique how like out of touch these people are <laughs> and, and how like they, they've become their own kind of cast of like space aliens. And, and they have this whole lingo, which just no one can understand. And, and that they use as a marker because there are, and I'm saying this, I say this in the report, but I'm, I, I'm saying this personally with the disclaimer that I am a humanities, uh, you know, I, I have a doctorate in international relations. I have a, a bachelor's in history. Like I, I, I am one of these people in, in, a, in a sense, but like not ideologically, but um, there is this, um, you know, there are too many humanities graduates and, and there needs to be a way to winnow them out to, to who are the loyal soldiers and who are not. And this is something I read about in Woke Imperium. It's why I have the class analysis part. Um, there needs to be an ideological and like performative filter for them to get through so they can determine, the hires can determine who is going to be a loyal foot soldier, who is going to toe the line for the institution. So the institution can keep doing what it's doing. And they have and this is what fuels this. This is on the professional side, not just the propaganda side, what fuels these moralistic kind of trends in policymaking. And so uh, this is um, right now the most popular thing amongst these people is wokeness. And so that's the hoops that you jump through. You, you apply to a thing. And if you want to see a great example of this used in a way that is hilariously kind of imperialist, yet performatively not, um, I have a link to it in the report. You can find it if you search it. There is this CIA recruitment video. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it or not. Um, about this uh, this this uh, woman who starts out like she literally starts out as like like a Twitter addicted person would uh, starts out listing like their identitarian badges and it just opens and she's like I am a cisgender Latinx woman of color who is, you know suffers from imposter syndrome. And I'm here at the CIA girl bossing all over the world. And it's like, oh my God. And she uses like this like kind of slam poetry radicalism uh, to talk about like how she is like bringing enlightenment and like women's empowerment while she works for an organization, which of course, as, as anyone knows, what it has done in Latin America uh, is anything but that. Uh, so it's, it's very, it's very interesting. Uh, that is this kind of weird juxtaposition like made manifest. You can see this stuff literally in how Fortune 500 companies, uh, how uh, certain diplomatic institutions uh, talk about things, try to recruit people, talk about their objectives. And it's just a repeat of this like you know, smug humanitarian Victorian racism in a weird way, where it's like, we're going to go out and make people's lives better because we have the secret knowledge. And it, it's very, uh, it's just bizarre. Um, and, and the only countries outside of Britain, America, Australia, Canada, that this works on, by the way, and this kind of feeds back to my earlier historic thesis, are like these Germanic countries in Northern Europe, right? I think the only foreign countries outside of uh, the really buy into, I mean, yeah, there's always going to be like a, a class of like neolibs in every country, like even very culturally different countries that really identify with kind of Anglo media. You, you see this particularly in India, but those, those people are a minority. But like when you actually see this ideology working, on a lot of people. It's almost always in these like North Sea, you know, like Protestant countries. It's always like Scandinavia, the Netherlands, like Germany. And, and, and those are the people, like look at the rhetoric of the German Green Party, right? You hear the term Green Party and you would think 
like, oh, it's a Green Party, right? Like, <laughs> uh, then you actually look at the German Green Party, and it's like John McCain wrote their talking points. It, it, it's yeah. really weird. So you you hit on something there I thought was a, an important crux of your piece, and it also overlaps with discussions that we've had on our podcast before, which is the kind of Peter Turchin idea of the overproduction of elites. And my kind of take on it uh, is that so – like the the intensity of the sort of woke rhetoric and the virtue signaling ratchets up as this crisis of overproduced elites increases because you need these more ever more stringent criteria to figure out who can compete in this musical chairs game where the chairs are just getting getting yanked away. And yeah. uh, Ashley and I are both in environmental fields, and so I, I would we could come up with like plenty of our own parallels of where we like watch the same thing happen and what shibboleths have developed in our field and the response to that and stuff. And I think that something that motivates a lot of people in the in the doomer optimism world is and I, and I've had some back and forth conversations with Catherine Liu about this, you know, uh, and and her her remarks to me are like, you know, this is a vicious world, this is a joyless world. Everyone is afraid of getting canceled. There's the Aaron Reich's like fear of falling, fear of proletarianization and all that kind of stuff. And it just sounds like the most miserable, anxious, awful existence, you know, And, 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 and as young people, they're growing up and they're going through college and you're getting socialized into this and you're presented as like, okay, if you want to be successful, you want to be a successful professional, this is the path you must walk. And I'm wondering if like, you know, as you're talking about how this thing plays out, I'm kind of anticipating a great degree of disillusionment with all this. And a lot of people saying, this is fucking terrible. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to be part of this. You know, and I think a lot of the of us Doomer Optimism people are are fringy type people who like maybe have one foot in the professional world in our disciplines, but have another foot, you know, like the memes and stuff on Twitter are like touch grass or getting to, you know, a lot of us are into gardening and farming or raising animals, homesteading practical DIY skills. And there's this whole huge world outside of like, this is like this weird little uh, culture and fighting that's going on in a particular layer of the professional managerial class. Like you said, the academia, journalism, foreign policy, weird, weird little world where all this is going on. And so, I mean, um, I mean, how do you see this breaking down? And do you see people just saying this sucks and I don't want to be a part of this and moving on and doing different things? Or, you know, I, I feel like, the overproduction of elites, in a sense, is going to be eventually a self-fixing problem, right? Because the society is just not going to be able to support this level of nonsense for, for too much longer. I would just add yeah, briefly um, that um, the, it also feels like this cancel, the cancel culture stuff, um, you're always walking on eggshells and you don't know when they're going to come for you. And then it just becomes this thing where like that everybody just keeps coming for each other. And no matter how much you like sh- share your or show your allegiance, like if somebody wants to come for you, they can and they will. Um, and then there's just like this cascading effect. But I also just want to briefly say the word Gnosticism, which is like, I, it feels a little bit Gnostic in the way of like, we have the one truth that will like, you know, open up um, heaven, you know, basically. And there is like, something very scary and utopian about that too which is just like you know follow along um you have to follow exactly um no dissent at all and then like the kingdom of heaven is yours basically yeah um yeah (laughs) uh it's it functions honestly i think psychologically it functions like a cult and which is why i am not 
I am not very optimistic about the sense that the people that are really bought into this stuff can ever be brought out of it. I mean, you can always take people out of a cult, but like, fortunately speaking, I kind of think these people are going to be my generation and younger, because uh, I think if anything, the Zoomers are even more into it. Um, uh, they're going to be like the version of like the boomers that never got over like, you know, like summer of 69 and like uh you know like uh the kind of like whole like self like narcissistic hippie like uh, uh hippie becomes reagan republican phenomenon like <laughs> you know whatever the hell that is the whole like i'm gonna destroy that the, the new deal uh that i benefited from and then <laughs> and then make sure that no one ever can socially climb a ladder ever again like i kind of feel like the same phenomenon is gonna happen uh with with the, the the kind of like people the judges of the world and it, it's going to be like a a whole like we're going to use this weird cult to prevent anyone uh, from coming following in our footsteps unless they follow it now of course to get to josh's point and my previous mentioning that it's really unpopular uh <laughs> the thing is these people are miserable and everyone except for them knows it like they just look at these people they're the most miserable people you have ever seen and this this is an attempt of them to lash out and, and you know like they love this stuff they love cancel culture and it's a thing that is very strong between and it's a weird thing because on policy levels i do think that you know there is a bigger difference between say like the far left than there is the center left and the center right or or even much of the right right because of like uh, how they view economics and stuff but on cultural level now it's very different now I, you actually see like really far left circles like people that like hate libs right <laughs> um they have the same exact views on social issues they have the same exact views on what you can talk about what you can't and like circling the wagons and stuff and they're also i would say on average incredibly miserable people and it's really interesting to see that like misery itself is kind of what keeps it going because on some level i think we've already crossed the point of like society's tolerance for it i i really do think that we've seen peak woke on, on some level you see a lot of people just being like nah you know like even if they're people that agree with many of the costs they're like whatever the sculpture around this is I'm not going to have any part of it. And I mean, I can say for myself, I used to be way more conservative when I was younger. I, I like bucked the trend. Like I, I was I was a member of the Libertarian Party when I was a teenager um, I, and in my early 20s. And, and I was like very, I kind of became center left through most of my 20s. And I'm actually like more left wing on uh, topical issues now than I was then. But I have always had a zero tolerance to like the hysteric, culture of wokeism i've always had like i've always been opposed to this i've always and and that hasn't changed at all and i think there's a lot of people like me who who like aren't even conservative at all and maybe sympathetic to some of these causes um increasingly selectively as things go by but you know uh but who who are just like i have nothing to do with this because it's unhelpful it's ineffective um it, it's it's just it is miserable. Like it will, it will like psychologically harm you if you're a part of it. Fortunately, I've never been a part of it. <laughs> to me, when I saw this rising, I saw it as the left's response to the religious right, and I immediately um, just kind of said no. Like th this is not at all. Like my my background is someone who is 
been diehard and still is like very opposed to the religious right it, it actually steeled me against woke <laughs> because i saw it as the left-wing version of, uh, of that phenomenon and, and i i just think in general there's people maybe there are people who have been part of it who drank the kool-aid but but you know didn't uh, all the way and they can kind of crawl out but what that what that means is when cults shed members when they contract um the there are people that leave and there are people that say oh thankfully we're over that phase but the people that stay get more radical because they see they, it's like their death rattle and they see like mm -hmm. oh the end of history didn't come well shocker it never does um anyone that ever believes in the end of history always gets proven wrong in the end that's the true lesson of the end of history um but you know these people that thought they were going to be the ones to bring about the new world um and it always is wrong and they always contract and then the true believers get weirder and my concern will be will there be enough of a backlash to get these people out of power before they go real nuts or is it going to be something that we all have to live with as the rest of society turns away from this messianism um are they gonna still like a lot of the boomer elite hold a position of power that they cannot be leveraged out uh and and, and just be move further and further afield from the rest of society. And I don't have an answer to that. I do think though, there's enough people at the top that are like cynical players that know if this thing has shot its load, then it's done and, and we're not gonna keep doing it. But it's more the kind of people in between them and, and the regular uh, people that are affected by trendsetters that I'm kind of curious about. And if we have conditions of belief overproduction, it's possible that there's just enough of them that even if they all get fired, they, they retain some level of political um, but it's really it's really hard to say because I, I don't know the proportions of how many of these people are true believers and how many of these people are just trend chasers. Uh, and there's probably quite a few people that are a bit of both, to be honest. And so it's hard to see. But I think if it's more cynical, that's actually good because they'll look at the balance sheet and they'll say, OK, no more of this. Um, and then they'll begin constructing the next <laughs> interesting uh, state ideology. But um, uh, nevertheless, um, but if there's a lot of them that really just can't be reasoned with, then I, I don't know, you know what to do about that. I, I really hope it's not that many. Um, I just want to float this theory um, real quick. Wait, Josh, did you have something to add to that? Um, so uh, something I haven't talked about on here, but I've like um, tweeted about a little bit. Um, but I think it was Anna Kachian um, of the Red Scare podcast who said- I'm a big fan. Um, yeah, the the um the culture of narcissism of Christopher Lash, um I, that we're now in like the culture of borderline personality disorder, and I love this theory. Like borderline, a lot of it has to do with victimhood, um and basically like histrionic, like just being extremely. Um, I think Kasha froze up. Do you want to try to take uh, off? Oh, uh, am I back? Testing, testing, one, two, You're three. You're back now, yeah. Okay. Yeah, maybe okay. give us a, a, about the past 10 seconds again. Okay, so a uh, culture of borderline personality disorder that has um, like a, the central tenet is victimhood. Um, and there's like this kind of hi like histrionic, like um, emotive part of it where if you're like extremely emotive about like your claims to victimhood, um, anyone who disagrees with you is like soulless basically. So you use this sort of uh, really upset posture, like I'm being victimized or there are people being victimized. Like 
you have to go along with this um as a way of like coercion um it's like a power play i I love that theory i think that where people aren't thinking about that enough but it feels like i'm saying on a society-wide level i'm not saying individuals there's like a culture of borderline um that's that's i think pretty insidious um it's just a cool theory i I think that's actually part of the utility honestly because when you look at foreign policy commentary what do you get when you say, I don't want to, I aggressively, and I, I don't, this is one of my own opinions. So I know arguing this from from, uh, from experience, when I say, I really don't want to intervene in Syria, I really, really don't. And by the way, I think the rebels are way worse than the government. And immediately the um, the reaction that you get is is exactly that. It's like, it's like uh, BPD Arho, like <laughs> talking about foreign policy, but it's from like a policy like person. And I'll be like, don't you care about the barrel bombs? Like, don't you, you know, whatever, whatever. It's like, how could you, you know, this is like Holocaust denial if you say that like X, Y, and Z. And it's like, really, it's like, it's like having, you know, uh, you know, a debate with the most like uh, unhinged uh, undergraduate in, in, in your freshman year, right? Who, who wants everyone to care about their issues. But it's like from someone who like works in policy or like works in the media and, and should be older and know better. And it's like, like what I care about an individual issue is so irrelevant compared to the big picture, A. And B, it's like, you've completely distracted from should we intervene in the Syrian civil war, yes or no, into making it a, if we don't intervene, everybody dies. If we do intervene, we can save people. And and it's just done without even making that argument. Because if you made that argument directly, it would be wrong. Because it would be objectively wrong. And anyone that knows anything about the country could prove you wrong. But um, because they're able to just immediately redirect it about you, what do you think? You know, like, don't you want to be on the right side of history? Once again, that 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 is always the watch out for that phrase. That is the bad phrase. <laughs> if there's anything that I think is uniformly bad, it's right side of history. All the people that have used it historically have been people who run inquisitions, who run witch burnings, who 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 want to suppress, usually often suppress minorities in support of a idealized vision of society. And so when you see stuff like that, I think immediately I, the constructive thing to do is to point that out <laughs> and to be like, this isn't an actual serious appraisal of policy. What this is, is it's an attempt to morally blackmail people to support what you want by jerry-rigging the terms of the debate about, against the backdrop of what's popular, what supposedly makes you a good person. And it's like, well, you know, I'm, I, I don't know, but maybe my, my personal ethics are just so different from these people, but it's never worked on me. <laughs> if anything, it kind of inspires me to be more of a troll uh, on them. But like um, d- the reaction I get when I, I interact with these people is it, just like, I mean, I, I have to stop myself from dripping with disdain because like our, our worldviews are just so different. Like I, I could never, ever conceptualize something like that. It would, it would be insulting to me. And, and so I, I think if they're going to play the moral black belt game, it, it makes sense to kind of throw that back in their face and be like, why do you think you know that you have this right? Like, how how much do you really know about this issue? Like, what um, are you kind of getting this because it's trendy or is this something you know? And even if you do know a lot about it, you have to acknowledge, which is something that my worldview allows and theirs often does not, that people can have reasonable disagreements on something um, 
and be totally diametrically opposed and not turn it into an existential battle of good versus evil. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, but that's just me. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm, uh, if this was a D and D alignment chart, I would be true neutral. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do that on do the Doomer Optimism. We're like trying to model this. Like we can disagree and talk about this um, and be different. So we have like a lot of diversity on the, the podcast and it's been really nice. It's almost like an act of political resistance to talk to people different than you and like have normal people debate. Um, go ahead, Josh. Exactly. Uh, yeah, on those along those same lines. Um, Chris, I think that you might have discussed a bit in your conversation with Max Blumenthal um, I heard. I just. I was working and I heard it, and I thought that's what I'm, I'm interested in. That I think you call the oppositional left-right alliance, and uh, as an opposition to the establishment left-right alliance, which is what we've been talking about this whole time. Exactly. So, can you can you um, just talk a bit about this oppositional left-right alliance? Who do you see to be important players in that? What you see are like avenues for pushback or for getting different ways of thinking into the discourse and having it not just shut down in favor of wokeism. The optimism yeah, um, of the doomer optimism. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I think there's potential there. Um, I'm not saying that like I'm I know all the ifs, ands, or buts because like while I do. I, I'm a skeptic of the idea that politics do break down to on a left-right binary. Like, I, I think just acknowledging where things are now in the present day, uh, i.e. contextually, I consider myself, to, if I have to adopt it, I consider myself to be much more on the left than the right. But, you know, I also have enough of the historical perspective to say if I lived in this time period, if I lived in that country, if I was here, there's lots of different me's that could have existed. <laughs> um, and uh, there's even right-wing me's that are out there in the alternate universe. So, um, you know, I, I think there's acknowledging that context really matters is one of the key things rather than some like platonic ideal of what is left and what is right. And if you understand that context matters, then you understand these things are situational. You can talk to different people than you if you're if you understand that compartmentalization rather than universalization is good um, You because you can say, oh, well, I have, you know, here's someone I agree with on these core of issues and the fact that we very strongly disagree on other issues. If those issues are different, why does it matter? Like, you know, if you're trying to do something, um, I mean, the one of the uh, podcasts I went on before Woke Imperium came out, but it was the first one where I dropped that I was working on it, uh, is Contra by Pedro Gonzalez. And, um, you know, he's really cool and we get along great. And we actually have very similar views on foreign policy. Um, if you were to compare our domestic views, they could not be more different. Um, but we were there to talk about foreign policy and we talked about foreign policy uh, and we had a great time. It's a very fun podcast episode. It, it's in reaction to a national interest piece I wrote about how you really shouldn't believe hyperbolic war crimes claims uh, from either Ukraine or Syria and from either side, whether Russia is saying them or Ukraine is saying them because they're used to manipulate the public. Um, and then I go in that article, I go on a historical deep dive on, on different times this has been used uh, in the 18th century by Britain against Spain. Uh, in the, the 20th century, multiple and 19th century by the Japanese Empire against China. Uh, so, um, you know, it, it's like that kind of a thing. And or uh, that, the, the lady that um, from uh, Kuwait that said that the Iraqis had thrown the babies out of incubators. Yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. It, it, exactly. Um, and, and also, of course, 
much more relevant to discussing American foreign policy, uh, the claim in the run-up to the Libyan war that uh, Libyan troops had been issued by Agra to commit vast rapes. Turns out, not true. Uh, no evidence of this claim was ever found. One person made this claim anonymously, and the media ran with it. So uh, these kinds of things, um, you know, so, you know, that's an issue that we talked about. And uh, yeah, like, this is a guy who, like, me and him could not be on more different, uh, different from each other on social issues. Um, doesn't matter. You know, we're talking about foreign policy. We're talking about history. We're talking about uh, uh, a kind of, you know, to use a term that gets misused, but is an actual real term, like false flag kind of uh, media operations. Why can't we talk about that, right? I, I'm sure somewhere out there, there's someone who says, who wants to cancel me because I'm, uh, you know, more left than right in the binary. Once again, I don't really, I, I never picked a philosophy and said, I want to believe in this. <laughs> I, I literally studied history first. And I said, based off what I know from history and living my life, like I'm piecing together a Jerry Rick worldview. But sure, it's it's more it's more left than right. <laughs> um, and, and I'm sure there are people that would be like, I can't believe that you you know, an obsessible left winger would, would, you know, go on Contra and talk to this guy, you know, who's like extremely anti-abortion or whatever. And it's like, why do you care? Like, we were, <laughs> A, we, we could have a debate on those issues if we wanted to, but we were there to talk about stuff that, that was truly nonpartisan. And I think it's this whole culture, which is particularly strong on the left. It used to be pretty strong on the right, by the way. So, it, it, but right now it's definitely on the left and in the center, who, like I said, kind of culturally emerging right now. Um, and then you have to ask yourself, oh, if you're so left wing, then why, why is like human resources at, at, at major companies so rapidly adopting your ideology, right? Like if it's so anti-establishment, <laughs> why, why is it so appealing to corporate oligarchs? But um, because, you know, HR likes to divide workers, I would say, but, <laughs> you know, that, that's hard for people to conceptualize. Uh, so I think the whole point is to compartmentalize, to be pragmatic rather than idealistic, and to say, if you want specific policy changes, please talk to people that agree with you on, on those policy issues to make your coalition and put aside everything else, because you can't do everything all at once. It's not about a cohesive worldview that you constantly impose on everything. It, it's about policy change, real hard policy change. And um, you do that by focusing on one set of issues at a time. And then when you focus on a new issue later down the line, your coalition is going to change. But that's the point. Since you don't have an absolutist conception of it, you say, okay, now we're focusing on different issues. Now our coalitions realign. Well, that's literally what happens in good foreign policy, right? You, you say, oh, this alliance is no longer good anymore. This rivalry is no longer good anymore. We're going to switch our diplomatic um, this is why you know, the, the best uh, philosophers are commenting on politics, in my opinion, are Taoist philosophers, <laughs> because well, Taoism is really about the flow, right? Go with the flow, but also, you know, you can make tweaks as you go uh, to make sure that you flow well. And, you know, it, it's not completely dismissive of human agency, but it's also like uh, but idealism, definitely not important. Like what you have to do is you have to go with what can be done and do what can be done and things will change. And there is no, you know, grand moral arc of it. It's just trying to survive in a practical sense. And so to me, I would say always, you know, leftists could, and I say this as someone who is much more of a realist than a leftist. <laughs> if, if you want to put an ist on me, it is definitely like 
realism, and I don't just mean foreign policy, although that's obviously the most important part of it. Uh, I also mean like philosophically, I very much consider myself to be philosophically like a realist um, and like a materialist in, in that sense. And um, like, to me, uh, it's like realism is useful for everyone though. And, and you can meet right-wing realists, left-wing realists, whatever, but it's all about what is the situation on the ground and how do you work with that situation, understanding that it's not permanent and it's not the end of history. It's it's an evolving process and, and your things are gonna change and whatever. And I think everyone can learn from that. I mean, more leftists should or whoever should read Machiavelli. They, they should read people like that. <laughs> Um, I would just add, it, it feels like as we're, the Dumer optimism little world is, is emerging that there, it's so much less left, right than it is like cultists and everyone else, like people who yeah. are willing to like, um, you know, not see a whole person, like see the whole person um, and, and not say like either you're good or bad, but instead like you're somebody I could work with on, like you were just saying on X issue. Um, it's kind of a self own to, to, um, like it's almost like you know playing into the elites to uh not be able to work together with allies because they're like supposedly a bad person or they will taint your reputation um and then we can't build coalitions that will like overthrow like the elites against our own interests um because you know this this person is tainted it's a very like useful idiot ideology, I think. Um, and I, I think of people like uh, Matt Taibbi, who I love, um, and Thomas Frank, who are like, you know, it, ruggedly independent with this kind of thing. And it's just like such a such a great um, beacon for for others who are like, where do I fit politically? Um, I'm wondering um, to lean a little bit more into the optimism um, as we're wrapping up. Um, tell us about the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy. Um, like what is a positive or optimistic vision? Um, and it's kind of a side question. Um, a lot of us kind of think that the empire like empirical process is, is somewhat collapsing based on like energy limitations. A lot of us are like peak oil influenced. Um, so I wonder if there is any optimism in just like having, less imperial power overall because of lack of resources to really subjugate um i don't know do you are you at all on that bandwagon um i don't i don't yet i'm it's something for a future project i'm going to research so i i um i might have an answer later but right now i don't have an answer as to viability of, of resource extraction as as part of it i could see it going a variety of ways um i can say that um um well, it's interesting you mentioned Matt Tai because he was actually the last person to, to interview me. <laughs> uh, we, we had a nice conversation about, about the, the woke Imperium uh, and, and actually ended up talking about um, uh, the Bush administration quite a bit and how that laid a lot of these things that, that we now see on, on the other side. Um, but um, yeah, no, I, I think it's really, really important to understand that you can critique out of control interventionism from basically any ideological persuasion. And that is what the Institute for uh, Peace and Diplomacy is, like effectively. We're nonpartisan, we're not even American really, we, we're joint Canada-US, uh, originally founded in Canada. Uh, the main HQ is in Canada. Um, we finally got our, our, our US like official list just a couple months ago. Uh, but the point is to kind of influence like the North American discussion in general, and maybe eventually like, you know, Anglo discussion in general, because like I said, it's like the whole like ex 
British world that kind of gets captured by these ideologies in a sense. And so our our concept is that we believe in like sovereignty of nations. We believe in, you know, uh, like we're not like peaceniks who say that you should never have a military or anything like that. You know, understanding that if you got rid of your military, someone would probably just attack you. Uh, that's like the nature of the international system. But that warfare, as Sun Tzu would say, is it's a necessity for state, but it is the absolute last thing that you should engage in. A lot of people have never read The Art of War don't know that it opens up with an introductory chapter that's like, so the first thing you need to know is that war represents a failure. Um, and, and therefore that war is a last resort. War is inevitable and you must prepare for it or you will die. But if you have any choice in the matter, it needs to be the last option because the danger, the expense, and all of the things that you can't predict about it, since it's kind of like rolling the dice as policy, um, they have much more chance to harm you than to help you. So it's a last resort. And that's kind of IPD's thing, right? Like it's not like it wouldn't consider itself an anti-war organization, but it would consider itself like a diplomacy always first. Diplomacy always first. You really have to try everything you can. Uh, we're very skeptical of the idea of wide-ranging permanent alliances, uh, kind of going to that old George Washington critique uh, of, you know, uh, if uh, you remain allied to a country too long, it distorts your interests with theirs. If you remain hostile to a country too long, once again, same process. Uh, there needs to be a bit of a flexibility, something that the North Atlantic can do because of its geographic location. Um, so it, it does not it is not like the U.S. has land borders with peer powers and hasn't since 1848. Um, it, it's just not really a thing. So there, it enables a flexibility for the North Atlantic to be more diplomatic, should it choose. So we're very skeptical about the amount of money and effort that is put into global expansion. Um, and uh, obviously, I think we've seen the rails come off of it in the war on terror. Uh, the, the war on terror has really, like in the 90s, America was riding high. There were no peer competitors. Um, and you could almost see, although I would have still disagreed with it for other reasons, you could see the neocon logic of like, you got to push now because some of the smarter neocons knew it was a temporary state of affairs. So uh, not most of them aren't smart, but <laughs> some of them were smart. And they saw, oh, like the 90s, maybe the early 2000s, this is the time to really push because we aren't going to be able to do this forever, so we should make as many gains as we can. Uh, that was still dangerous, and it, it still would have backfired, I think, but that, that was thinking. Um, but most of the foreign policy elite just kind of just conceptualizes it in a way where there is, other people are independent actors. Their sovereignty doesn't matter, um, unless they're being attacked by someone we don't like. Then, uh, only, and only then does it matter. <laughs> But I, I agree, it does matter. Uh, I just wish that we were more consistent on, on that principle. And so they want to, and part of it is, of course, a big part of it is economics, tying all these countries' economics together. But the interesting thing is we're seeing like the negative side of that too. Even if you are an elite, I'm not just talking the negative side for like workers, offshore, whatever. I, I mean, like right now, like how much control does Taiwan have over semiconductor? Uh, yep. manufacturing right how much control does uh certain countries have over x y and z how many countries neglected their agriculture sector to crash course industrialize and now oops you can't get food from ukraine like yeah. this creates a big big problem even for the elites now and, and and we're starting to see as countries reassert themselves in terms of power against the u.s often successfully in a relative sense 
um, that the whole idea that the U.S. can just uphold global trade single-handedly is BS. And so some degree of re-regionalization in a geopolitical sense. And this is actually what my next research project, hopefully, if it gets funding, fingers crossed, is going to be um, about how America viewed itself as the universal and internal empire for so long, like of the world, that it forgot how to read a map and it forgot about geography. And in so doing, it now has these really screwed up looking logistical chains that make no sense. It's much more vulnerable to foreign attack uh, than it otherwise would be, ironically, because they always say, well, if you're not everywhere, then someone else will be there. And it's actually, no, the number one cause of imperial decline in history is, is overextension. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that, that, that just is the case. So um, and you actually weaken yourself when you put yourself, particularly in regions that I don't think matter at all for American security, uh, most of Africa, the Middle East. Uh, so it, it's very, very, very strange. And the way I, I would say uh, um, IPD's thing is like, hey, you know, remember, remember like the core of uh, good foreign policy principles that, that actually worked you know, back when the U.S. did actually be good, at, used to be good at foreign policy. Like, <laughs> um, it's not like it's always been this bad, but it was good when it knew it was vulnerable and when it wasn't totally hubristic. And so I think it's really important to kind of remind, which is what we're hoping to do on the kind of think tank uh, hard policy front and what other people I, I, I've seen are, are doing it in other ways is like remind people geography exists. Um, <laughs> you're not the protagonist of the story. Um, yeah, other countries have interests too. Um, overextension is bad and dangerous potentially. Uh, diplomacy is a better uh, thing to reach for than either war or sanctions. We have a whole thing uh, that I'm co-author on, a, a sanctions report that basically makes a very strong case that sanctions don't really work as intended, even if you love them. <laughs> they, they, they backfire pretty bad. Um, so, you know, we, we want this kind of more stable, like, yeah, let's do trade, absolutely. But uh, our logistical network shouldn't be enslaved to uh, this kind of concept of just global free trade everywhere all the time. Uh, that the only empire that ever made that work was the Mongol Empire. And that was because uh, other people did not have, um, there wasn't this hugely divergent standard of like industrialized versus non-industrialized, right? So they could literally, as the people that lived on the steppe, uh, between all the, the settled places, be the arbiters of trade. And it actually worked really well for them. Uh, but that, with the Industrial Revolution, that ceases to be a viable option of maintaining like stability and it actually increases instability when you have these divergent paths of development uh, that are just so different from each other but forced to be in the same network and it really distorts i think natural evolution of society much in the same way that imposing a foreign religion or a ideology like wokeness uh distorts the development of, of a society uh from how it would naturally be and because societies evolve in a geographic context uh, that's ecological, that is historical, whatever. And it, that needs to be accepted. And there's, I think, as long as people are focused on what I would say is like things like geography, like cost-benefit analysis, it's very easy to make an almost non-ideological case against this constant sprawling um, imperium, which I honestly think undermines American national security, like the, to use a very establishment term, in addition to, I think, distorting our own society as well.
Well, Chris, man, I got to say, we're like a million percent your allies in this line yeah. of thought. And I hope that that project gets funded and I hope you get to work on it because that is very much in line with so much of the Joomer Optimist ethos. We, many of us, not all of us, but many of us come from like an environmental science or something standpoint uh, concerned about ecology, sustainability, biophysical economics and things like that. And recognizing that this highly integrated global system unipolar dominated by the u.s with the long supply chains and i mean so much stuff about the pandemic has like revealed the fragility of that which i mean it shouldn't be a surprise it's it's it's, it's real common sense like you're saying geography matters resources matter energy matters transport and all that kind of stuff and and i think many of us are anticipating like um very like stages of deglobalization mm-hmm. where regions become more important and economies start to relocalize to a considerable extent. So that's where a lot of us are coming from, like really focusing on bioregions as more fundamental units for an economy rather than just an abstract global, whatever, whatever is the quote unquote most efficient way to do things, you know, and the vulnerabilities right. implied in that. And um, yeah, and I, I, I totally see that like, it's so great to talk to you somebody from a very different academic background than me, you know, you're from the humanities and from social sciences. And, you know, I've had some great conversations with Catherine Liu in the same way. And I feel like what I want to see, yeah, she's amazing. What what I would love to see is to kind of bring together in a synthesis, people coming like from an environmental or a biophysical or resource perspective, along with the people that are more adept at analyzing the social, because, because, I mean, we talked about um, the, the overproduction of elites. Well, I see that, you know, energy and resource constraints and the unsustainability of the economy as providing an important, because the whole idea is, well, we've produced too many of these type of graduates with these type of expectations in terms of like status and job title and role in society. But along with that sort of social role in society, goes a certain lifestyle, a certain degree of material affluence and that sort of thing. So the question that I posed to Catherine Liu is, you know, how, how, how does the, the PMC respond when resource limitations provide a choke point for actually being able to support the material affluence to fulfill the lifestyle expectations that go along with the social status and the more intangible elements, you know, and, She's basically like, that's a good question. I hadn't thought a lot about resource constraints. And why would she? She's in the humanities, right? You think about that and we think about this. But man, I, this, is, this is like so fantastic. I'm super impressed. I really hope this project goes forward. I have a huge amount of interest in that. And I totally think that this kind of synthesis between the biophysical aspects, economic localization. And, 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 and I, the other thing we talked about earlier was the sort of misery and anxiety that's inherent in the, in the sort of cancel culture. And I, mm-hmm. and, and so much of us in the Doomer optimism world, I mean, we, we joke and make fun of ourselves that we're posting like cottage core or whatever on Twitter, or like, look at my garden, look at these watermelons I grew or whatever. But there is a real like joy and engagement in this life as an alternative to, to, to that world. And so I wonder if like an effective recruiting tool to kind of get people out of that, you know, that really negative scene is to say, hey, there's this whole other world where you can be part of helping to recreate local economies, focusing on basic things like shelter and food system and energy and transport. And there's so much like really positive work that provides a lot of meaning and connection, connection with nature, connection with community. And I think that's such a positive outcome, you know, 
I think the Doomer optimism thing started with the recognition of like uh, various people saying like, okay, some kind of collapse is imminent. And that's the Doomer. That's that, you know, or, or like we look at like, okay, the woke of here. Now we have like all this crazy social justice, justice woke rhetoric that's infecting our foreign policy and inducing us to go and invade some country and try to change their whole society or whatever. And that's just such a huge downer. You know, so maybe we can end or maybe we can wrap up with some of your thoughts about the optimism side of that is to say, yeah, like, well, we don't have to do that. And there are a lot of there are changes that we can anticipate coming down the road. We can start to prepare for those changes. And that provides a sense of meaning and positivity. And like you're saying, you can sit down with Pedro Gonzalez and have a conversation and find a huge amount of common ground, even though there's much you disagree with. To me, that's just the normal way that adults interact. You know? <laughs> And it's, yeah, Paul, Paul Kingsnorth just came out with a thing like we need to grow up. We all just need to grow up and like and stop being so childish. Wait, just before you answer, Chris, and this, this will be the last answer because we're going long. Um, just yesterday, I tweeted the following and you can take this for your research paper if you get it funded. I'm just joking. But um, okay. I, my tweet was it's almost like assuming forever, forever global peace and outsourcing the necessary manufacturing for society to function was a bad idea question mark so it's just like assuming we're everything will just be great and we're in like the end of history and there'll, there'll never be a conflict wherein some small uh one society that does all of one thing like we're now not friends with them anymore like who thought this was a good idea um but anyways let, let's get out of the doom let's finish with optimism um and and wrap it up get your final thoughts Right, yeah. Well, I, I'm good at skating the, this border because I, I would personally, I mean, maybe you guys can win me over, I don't know, but I would personally neither describe myself as a doomer nor an optimist. <laughs> uh, I, I like I like the uh, the term that Lovecraft used in his private letters to his friends as, as indifferentist. Uh, but um, <laughs> um, I get where you're coming from because that is like the warp and weft of how things go. As, as events go, the worse they get, the opportunities actually increase. To, yeah. to do things that are substantive change. That's, that is a pattern I actually do think that you can find in this theory. Yeah. Um, if, if you are, you know, but of course that who makes the change, right? And that's where politics comes from. Uh, that, that, that's where people disagree, but, but absolutely. The, more, the worse things get, the better things could, could be. Yeah. They could also get worse too. Uh, but <laughs> but um, uh, it is possible because people are thinking more critically and they're thinking, okay, well, the, the old institutions have failed us. So I definitely think there's immense potential there, um, as, as I am, as, a, as an indifferentist. My default setting is skepticism, but I'm always open to it. I'm always open to it, and I, I encourage it, absolutely. I think it's important that people look at these alternatives and they, and they look at how they come back from stuff like this. Um, I would say, you know, as kind of uh, the closing thoughts, when we're looking at these issues, it's really, really important um, to keep in mind, yeah, like you said, Josh, like it's it's really important to keep in mind how people from different, it's not like just an ideological thing talking like adults, it's like a professional thing too. You know, I'm in foreign policy, you're in the environmental side. I think those things complement each other really well. There's a lot of work that's been done in the speculative realist philosophy community, which I have become very interested in. I've written, not, not like published, but on my blog, going back, not recently, I've written a lot about speculative realism and speculative materialism, which is a philosophical school that is really concerned with kind of moving away from postmodernism, of course, and also 
and back into like real stuff that matters and exists independently of what we think about it, um, mm -hmm. which is the correct position. But um, also is <laughs> learning from philosophical trends. Uh, it does have, um, you know, a, a, a fixation on like, well, there are things in continental philosophy that are useful. Um, and, and it is very, uh, I think, although it's not like a policy focused thing at all, it's more metaphysical. I think it's actually very useful. Uh, for me in my worldview, that this kind of like a, a relativistic, uh, but materialistic, right? So not absolute, not not platonic, not uh, uh, right or wrong, because if it was, that would just be a science, but also understanding that the universal relativism, uh, ironically, what it is of postmodernism is just the least useful way to go about that. So so the kind of understanding of, and it's very focused on environmental issues. So your fan base would probably love speculative realism, but the, the philosophical works uh, selectively, but they, they tend to they tend to focus on stuff like that. Um, I think uh, particularly the book, uh, Levi Bryant's book, um, um, uh, 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 the Ontology of Machines and Media or something like that, um, is a really, really good take on how different things come together to, to conceptualize uh, kind of material action in a way that is like understands environmental uh, nature um, and how that actually could be, those lessons could be used on, on a more uh, policy level on some level. So uh, stuff like that's really interesting. I also think your fan base would really like a report I co-authored with, with three other authors, actually it's a big flagship report for IPD. Um, called the Middle Powers Project. Now, the, the, this is this is about. You can find it on our website. Um, this is about a um, trend we noticed that people recognize multipolarities coming back. You know, China's a peer competitor. Russia and India probably not peer competitors, but could be. Well, more India <laughs> could be one day. Uh, but people are really hyperfixated, almost like it's 1975, on this return of these core states, and we think that they're missing that what's really happening. I mean, that is happening. But what's really happening is that middle powers, uh, so regionally anchored strong powers in specific regions, are now much stronger than they used to be and now are the key actors when dealing with any region where their middle powers are more rooted than superpowers are. So, you know, Turkey and Iran in the Middle East, Germany and Europe, uh, uh, outside of the China Sea or Japan and Asia, uh, South Africa, um, Brazil maybe one day. Um, these are countries that really, really matter. And they're overlooked, particularly by the conventional um, global north, if you will, um, foreign policy establishment. And so if people are interested in like our concept of like a more uh, a less globalized, more localized uh, view on, on where we think geopolitics is headed, whether people like it or not, um, they might like our middle powers report. So, so that would be a thing. And then the other thing I would say about local stuff, and I actually had a brief email exchange with you, Josh, about this, <laughs> um, is that I'm really fascinated by like local mythology and stuff, because I think, I'm, I don't believe it's true in a literal sense at all. Like <laughs> I am like a total materialist, but I think it's, it's incredibly fascinating because it shows how people differentiate themselves from everything else around them. And, um, and it kind of becomes like a, and people like things that aren't just like good or bad. Once again, fitting our other thing, people like things that are like complicated and you feel like contradictory emotions about it, which I think is like monsters are a great example of that, like mythical monsters and, and certain parts of the world, they have that. So, you know, because I knew that you would be here, Josh, and we talked about it where you're from, I made sure to wear my uh, Mothman shirt. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my God! That's amazing. That's amazing. I, that's so funny. I didn't notice that, but I did. I remember I, when we were on, and I was like, "Oh, he's doing the whole blazer and a t-shirt thing." Okay, you know, which is fine. But that's that's amazing, man. Oh, that's I had a reason for it. I, I I had to pick between this and my Flatwoods monster shirt because I, I bought both on my road trip through West Virginia last fall. So that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, tell yeah us no, about I, the moth, I think the moth Josh, is a great example us. of like localism, right? So yeah, we could definitely have a whole other Doomer optimism thing on on uh, crazy Appalachian myths and about and including the famous Mothman of Point Pleasant. And yeah, we had a little email exchange about that. I grew up not far from there, so yeah, that's yeah. Well, that's really yeah. I'm, you wove that into this conversation, Chris. That's that's so, that was so I, good. I, that was so good. I knew I knew you guys would bring up the localism angle, so I, I figured um, it, it would be worthy to uh and that you had the west virginia connection so it would be worthy to give the room. <laughs> that's wild that's so dude. perfect and finally i will just add uh, as we wrap up that um probably at least half of the doomer optimists um refuse to say that they are are them but continue to engage in like the conversation so you we have a really nice heuristic where we force people to be in um, just by engaging with us, despite their skepticism, because everybody's skeptical, you know, that's like part of why they are drawn to it. Um, so you're, so you're in Chris, whether sense. you, where, whether you like it or not. Um, I'm perfectly happy to, to, to be involved. Uh, um, sure. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just call you part of the group. It doesn't require anything besides you've already, you're already I'm, on I'm the podcast. So it's, yeah, good. I'm absolutely um, fine with it. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Okay, well, this was so lovely. Um, Chris, thank you so much. Um, people should follow you on Twitter. Um, follow up with you, how? Uh, yeah, so um, I have a lot of my uh, policy publications. Uh, a lot of them are on the IPD website. If you search like my name, I'll have a page. It doesn't go all the way back. Unfortunately, it has like a weird cutoff. So not everything will be listed there, but a lot of it will be. Um, and then I have... Um, I published a lot of stuff in random places scattered throughout foreign policy, um, uh, like journals and and uh, commentary websites. Uh, the one place where I've compiled all of them, it, my personal blog has a tab called publications. And so that just lists all the noteworthy publications that I felt like listing anyway, uh, and, and has links to them directly. So that's one place they're consolidated. Um, the rest of my blog isn't necessarily geopolitical, though it can be. Uh, but oftentimes it's like not. It, it, it's personal, but 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 not like oh, personal, private. But you know, it's just not professional. Um, but that being said, the the publications tab compiles all my noteworthy stuff. So uh, that way you don't have to go looking at all the National Interest, Quincy Institute, American Conservative, whatever. Like go through all all the different things that I publish. So, um, so that's the easiest way. That's called GeoTrickster. So, I mean, there's nothing else called that. So, so if you search that, you should get that. Um, my Twitter handle is Chris Bot. I'm not a very active Twitter user. So, you know, don't expect anything from that. I just promote whenever I publish something, basically. Um, and then, yeah, my IPD, uh, I have an IPD thing. Um, and that's about it so far, because, you know, we're, we're, we're early, we're relatively early on my think tank phase in life. I had, I had an academic phase like you guys, and then I had a State Department phase. Um, and, and then I had like a, a, a tutor, like assistant phase. And, and so the think tank thing, I, I'm like two years into it, I guess. Um, uh, but you know, we're, we'll see, we'll see where it goes. Um, so far so good. I do actually like it uh, as long as I'm, you know, not in like a super establishment think tank and that allows me to do what I want to do. It actually suits my uh, interest pretty well. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my stuff. And, um, 
uh, yeah, I, I'm always happy to uh, to engage with people who are interested in like the intersection of like uh, you know environment, geography, and policy because I think that that, that is an overlooked worldview, considering that we have, for reasons we've discussed, uh, a very uh, kind of idealistic, and I mean that in a philosophical sense, like I, idealist conception in the United States of how things work. Like you think good thoughts, you're a good person, good things happen, right? Uh, it's like the secret but political. <laughs> and it's like, I'm like, I couldn't be more different from that. I, I like to read things outside of, you know, the human consciousness whenever possible. So. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, Chris, right. cannot thank you enough for your time. Um, your writing is great. I'm definitely going to check out more of your pieces, encourage everybody to do so. Um, best of luck to you, man. Yeah, thanks. And best of luck to you, too. It sounds like you guys are doing really interesting stuff. <laughs>